Good morning. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Acts, um, but since I won't be here when you get to Acts 20, I'm just going to do that for you this morning. So <clears throat> I've chosen a text that's not exactly chronological to where you are, but it just saves you one one text later, one, one, maybe you can just take that crucible off in June or whenever that comes. Uh, for those of you that don't know me or don't know me well, it, you know, occurs to me there may be new people or people I have not met. Uh, this may be a little bit, this morning may be a little bit, um, voyeuristic for you. I'm just getting a lot of ring or feedback. Who, who's on sound? I don't see a single person. It's just... <laughs> And no one's moving. There he is. There he is. It's like a lot going on up here. <clears throat> so do you know, you know, you ever like in a group setting and there's uh, two people who are, let's just say, newly in love or something like that. And they, they, they can't stop touching each other. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Ex excessive PDA kind of situation no yes I, I actually think all PDA is excessive PDA um, and bless your heart you knew you knew couples you, you don't realize just how uncomfortable you make everyone um, or maybe you don't care maybe that's the whole point of PDA is you just you're so enraptured with each other that it doesn't matter uh, well, if you're if you're new or you don't know me very well, this morning may be a little like that. It may be a little bit of uh, public display of affection between me and those who know me and the the long journey that we've been on together. <clears throat> so I'm really going to speak to, of course, all of us, and the text should resound in all of our hearts as leaders. But uh, it's going to have, I hope, I believe, special significance. To those who have walked the longest together with me. So uh, I want to pray and then we'll, we'll take a slight deviation in our normal pattern this morning for how we deal with the text. But Lord, this morning, well, like every morning and like so many So many Sundays before this one, I ask, we ask, that you would invade this place, our minds, our hearts, our lives, that there would not be a single place in my life, my heart, which is not open to you. Lord, have us once and for all. Have us. All of us. Use again somehow the weakness of my flesh, the inadequacy of my words 
to usher in your will this morning. We cherish you. We welcome you. We're fascinated by you. Jesus, come. Amen. So because of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, circumvent, circumnavigate the, uh, the reading of the text and the groups and so on. But I actually do want you to personally enter into the text. So I'm going to give you about you know, 50 seconds to read this little bit from Acts 20 on your own, quietly. Uh, and then I'll read it again over you. So, so obviously, when you read it on your own, try to try to try to enter into it. Just just by way of context, uh, against advice, Paul is, and through the tears of his friends, Paul is has decided has set his mind to go to Jerusalem. Uh, it's not that things aren't going well for him where he is or where he was. It's just that he came to believe that the Spirit of God was leading him there. And so on this long journey from west to east, uh, he stops in the port city of Miletus, which is, this is what you'll, this little bit you'll read. It's just close enough to be able to get word to, to his friends, to this church, which he invested a good portion of his life and his, his, his missionary life in, in Ephesus. It's perhaps his greatest church success. It's probably the closest group of people to his own heart. Uh, and so this moment is recorded by Luke. It's canonized by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's been relived over and over again in the leadership life of the people of God for 2,000 years. Um, and so this is that account of that, that, those farewell words, and in many ways it is mine as well. So take, take a minute and just read that for yourself. This is the words of God. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing, by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated 
to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. There's something kind of, uh, I don't know, spooky, complex about this text. And really any text like it, it is, uh, it's like a scene from the movie Inception. It's like a, a layers of implication and meaning. This is like a reflection, Paul's reflection on his own leadership in the company of those he's led, which is some final act of leadership in itself, some parting word. He's talking about his own leadership as a gesture of leadership to explain what leadership is in the church. I think in some ways this may be one of the most important acts a leader can do, can engage in, to describe what we have done and why. To not just live a certain way, but at some key point to explain why. At some level, it's like hermeneutics of your own leadership. You have to do it. Or people may misunderstand or miss some of what we intend. Because I think, I think when people see good leadership or godliness or whatever, holiness or beauty even, I think we know at some kind of visceral, personal, existential level, this is good, this is, this is something that I'm experiencing. But it takes that last gesture, that, that last sort of leadership awareness to, to stop and recognize, you see something here, but you don't quite know what it is. And so I'm going to explain to you what I have done. It's a, it's, but it's a strange act to engage in because at one level you're, you're talking about yourself and yet, and yet it can't be about that. It's something more important. It's illuminating a virtue, even virtue which you have considered important in your own life. And to feign some kind of false modesty or humility in this moment to say, oh, I can't, I'm not going to talk about myself, even if, even if it's something to do with the kingdom or the way I believe the kingdom should be lived. And so Paul is, is releasing. On the one hand, he's, he's sort of describing his own work. And at the other hand, he's, he's engaging in some sort of deep kind of uh, uh, profound humility to do it. It's, it's like to say, to point out what we do in our lives, to say... It's like a living lesson. I think this is truest when you have kids. You just recognize that you have to do this or your kids won't understand. I can remember very, very early on when we decided to move, uh, you know, really to raise our kids 
in a poorer neighborhood, an inner city neighborhood. And I remember very early when I just had like three kids, I, I remember talking to Kristen, uh, then Reed, now Sanders, Kristen Sanders, who actually was the only person I knew anywhere who had been raised that way. She grew up in sort of the Voice of Calvary, uh, Jackson, Mississippi community. And I asked her, what was it like as a child to be raised in that sort of environment? And, and can you give me any tips for my kids? And I, I won't forget that she told me that day, she said, Brian, just explain it to them. Explain why you're doing it. Maybe that was a deficiency in her own experience. They were doing something beautiful, something extraordinary, actually. Something that required sacrifice, not just on behalf of the parents, but actually also the kids needed to make certain kinds of sacrifices. And it's easy to just do it and never explain it. It's hermeneutics on your own life of leadership. Now, I'm not Paul. I'm not purporting to be him. But I am supposed to, I think, be like him. And in some parts of my life, maybe the best parts of my life, I can say some of these same things. Of course, I, I also have met Jesus on the road of my own destruction. I also was captured by that light from heaven. I was also called in my own way to suffer for his name's sake and to make known his name among the Gentiles. And so I, I too relate to the choices that he has made in this service of our what is what has to be considered our shared obsession, the glory of Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. And so this morning as I sort of, I don't know, say goodbye and leave you with uh, some sort of parting words. As I ask you to maybe hold on to a few things, for me, if, if for no one else, then for me, so that the underground, this community in Tampa in particular, will always be a place where I can come back to. I might ask, I might, I, might, I might illuminate these, bring out these same ideas this morning that Paul does to his dear friends, these elders at Ephesus. You know, he says, how I lived. You know how I lived. The whole time I was with you. Extraordinary. What do we call this? This is, this is integrity. It's, it's, it's embodiment. It's, it's saying literally everything about his life. You know my whole life. You've seen my whole life. Nothing has been hidden from you. I'm not some figurehead. I'm not some person just on a stage. You saw my whole life. Not just my words. Not just my ideas. Not just my leadership. My whole life. He doesn't have to qualify or say it's just this one part of his life. He's saying, look, at you, you saw the whole thing the whole time. It's bold. It's easy to discredit. If there were a flaw in his life, if there were sort of one hidden piece of his life that, that he didn't want people to know about, one sort of, one sort of uh, breach in his armor, one sort of place of unholiness which he kept hidden from the world, he, it, he would have to live differently. He'd have to shield himself, hide somehow from the, from the full light of community. And that's not how he lived when he was with them. 
My whole life, he said, you, you saw how I lived among you. He does not say, you saw how I preached. He doesn't say how I gave or how I sacrificed or what a leader I was or what a great fundraiser or what a great organizer or innovator. He says how I lived the whole of my life among you, the whole thing, the whole time. It's like a body of work, a portfolio of his life. Guys, I'm going to tell you, when I, when I read that, it makes me want to cry. I just think to my core of who I am, this is the kind of leader we should aspire to be. Not, not just the person that does uh, uh, so, sort of one part of the spiritual life well and hides our, 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 our weaknesses, our idiosyncrasies. But says, this is my whole life, imperfect though it may be. Look at my whole life. Consider my whole life. Take my whole life as an example. It is strength of conviction which is held through time. Not just one moment and not just one thing. But deep commitment, deep conviction held in the person, in a person, an imperfect person over time. It's not just what he said he would do that mattered. It's, it, for him, it was about serving Jesus with the wholeness of his life. It was his way of life. The whole thing is beautiful. It's fascinating. It's strong. It's a, it's a body of work. I think that I think that in some ways we, we, we all know that this is the kind of person we're supposed to be. A person whose life bears witness to something eternal, something outside of this world. Something attractive, something fascinating, something strong. I, I have a 15-year-old named Simeon who's here, and, and even my 15-year-old has a certain way about him, a life in which others can see the face of God. He told me a story recently. He goes to, uh, well, he's in high school now. He's a freshman in high school. And he, he, I picked him up from school the other day, and he was just sort of beaming. And I said, how was your day? He said, Dad, my day was amazing. I said, really, tell me why. He said, well, I was, I was uh, in one of my classes and one of my teachers came up to me and he said, uh, can I talk to you? And he thought, he said, I thought I was in trouble, but he said, don't worry, you're not in trouble. Just can I talk to you? And so he pulled him aside and he said, I, I, please don't be a f feel weird about this. This is a, this is a, this is a, you know, an adult teacher. He said, please don't feel weird about this. I know I'm an adult and I know you're just a kid, but if it's okay, I want to ask you, uh, what, what does it mean can you tell me what it means to know Jesus, to follow God? I said, well, what would you say? He's like, Dad, I was not prepared for this question. <laughs> you know? He said, to be honest, I just rambled. He said, he said something about giving to the poor. He said, I, I don't know, like he said, if you see a, this is, this is great too, this is sort of uh, who, I guess who Simeon thinks a, a good Christian should be or something. He's like, if you see someone who's poor 
and you've got $20 in your pocket, and you're going to buy drinks. I don't know why he chose that, but he said, you're going to buy drinks. <laughs> and this person has nothing, and you could, you could do without. He, he said, you, you should give the $20 to them. That's what it means to follow God. He said, he, said, he said, you should read your Bible every other day. I'm not sure why he said every other day. <laughs> Because that's what he, I think, I'm assuming he said every other day because that's what he does. <laughs> this guy said, I don't know, I don't know, I just feel like I need something in my life. And he said, I started going to this Catholic church, it's the only thing I could find. I just started showing up, but I can't understand it. I don't know what's going on. And I just thought maybe you would know. I said, what are you doing at that school, son? Are you running around... <laughs> How does he know? How did he know to ask you that question? And you know what he said? Simeon said, I don't know, Dad. Maybe it's just the way I carry myself. How he lived. He says, you saw how I lived. It was noteworthy, attractive. And Simeon's so young. He's so young. If he can do that, even in a moment, I mean, he's been at that school for three months. What does that look like over a lifetime? Can you imagine the power of that? The implications of that, the strength of that, the commentary of that in this world. And this is what lives are meant to be. Our lives are meant to be. Curiosities of integrity. Anomalies of love. And it's the whole time. It's that bit too. The whole time. You saw I lived the whole time I was with you. I didn't take days off. I didn't take weeks off from loving you. From serving Jesus. From holding on to virtue and our values. I never took a break from that. It is this commitment, the arc of commitment through the length of a lifetime that makes it echo through the centuries even. It counts even in eternity. You know how I lived among you. And I might be so bold as to say you have seen my way of life too. Those of you that know me know my way of life. And you may not agree with everything that I have chosen to do or who I've chosen to be. But you know. You know that I have declined higher salaries. You know that I have resisted the spotlight. You know that I've cho chosen to raise my children in non-white contexts. You know that I've given my money and my time and the very best of my mind, body, and soul to serving Jesus and his people. You know that I've lived always in the light of community. You know that I've been submitted to authority, that I've given away power, that I've fought for justice whenever I encountered its absence. You know that I have not tried to control, but have fought to create a place and systems where people are free and empowered and trusted and served. You know that I've stayed close to the poor and faithful to my family and repented of my sin and learned from my mistakes 
and loved my enemies and forgiven just as I have been forgiven. That I have suffered with hope and laid down my life for you. And so many of you have as well. It is our way. It is our way of life. Our rule of life. And I'm asking you this morning, I'm pleading with you, not to give it up. To hold it in trust. For me, for our children. The underground is important. It is a part of the story of God. The story of the church in our time. And maybe beyond. And if we falter now. If we compromise now. If we give up our way of life now. Everything that we've worked for. Everything that we've said. Will be invalidated. By naysayers. People will say it was just a trend. It was just a fad. People will say that we only cared about the poor for a season. That we only resisted materialism for a season. That we only really cared about multi-ethnicity for a time. Because it was fashionable to do so. And I beg you. I beg you to persevere. Hold on to our way of life. With great humility, he says. With great humility. Who says that, by the way? In reflecting on your own life, do you ever say, you know, look upon me as an example of great humility. <laughs> it's like by saying it, hasn't he negated it? Doesn't it mean he's no longer... Well, you were hum humble until you said that. Uh, how does he do this? How does he pull this off? How does he say, somehow with the approval of the Spirit of God canonized here in Scripture, uh, how is this not a brag? A serious humble brag. Like the worst kind of humble brag, like, I am so humble. That's not, that can't be done, and yet he's doing it. I've reflected on this quite a bit. Some of you know that humility is this, this sort of obsession of mine because I'm so bad at it, but, but also because I know that somehow it's, so, it's a secret somehow to the kingdom. And as I reflect on this, this uh, expression here, I keep thinking that the reason why this works in the text, it has integrity, is for a couple reasons. And one of them is that humility maybe is actually a condition. And it's either present or it isn't present. And if it is present, then to reflect upon its presence is simply a, a sober reality. And I think, I wonder, as I think about him and as I think about us and as I think about the, the pursuit of my own life, that I think it's a, it's a necessary condition for the kingdom to come. I don't think the kingdom can come in a place, in a community, in leaders or leadership or, 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 or any kind of context where humility is not reigning. I actually think that every single time we promote ourselves, and this is such a, such a, such a poison, actually, 
in the church in the West. Every single time we promote ourselves, we, 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 we move God's hand against us. It's a necessary condition for the kingdom to come. We have to bear, at least to bear with each other and to understand, look, we're all idiots. We're all sinners. You're not going to partner with anybody in ministry. You're not going to enter into a relationship with anyone on planet earth in this life who is not going to wreck you at some point. Oh, and by the way, you are going to wreck them too. Even the best among us makes mistakes. You understand that, right? So I'm going to pick Keisha because I think Keisha is the best among us. So I'm going to tell you a story. Now, I heard this story secondhand. But, as any good journalist, I vetted it and found another source for the story. So I have the source from two people. I've sourced this story from two people. But Keisha doesn't know I know this story, and so she can correct it later if it's not, if it's not right. This is what I heard. Years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe three or four years ago, we were in the Second Avenue hub, and it was during a, a crucible, and so, some, you know, and some guy, uh, there were some new people had come in, and this new person was apparently was like a rapper, he was a rapper, and him and his wife came in, and Drew Kaufman recognized him, that's that rapper, whatever, so it like. Quick thinking, he went back to the back and put this guy's album on. Yeah, he put it on. So like, cool, check it out, man. We're playing your music. So it's like break, and he, you know, he puts on his music. So it's cool. This visitor gets his own music playing at the break time, and everyone's. And Keisha comes over. Now you have to understand, Keisha is like very, very like profoundly sensitive both to God and to people. She's just good at both. She's sort of doesn't have a weakness in that regard. She's just deeply sensitive to the people around her. So she goes over to greet this couple, new people. Hey, welcome to Underground. And she's listening to this music and she's like wincing, like, what's this music? <laughs> so she says, this is what I heard. She says to the guy, oh, sorry about the music. I don't know what this is. <laughs> is that true? Did that happen? Anyway, that's what I heard. You said, you said, this reminds me of strip club music. Beautiful, beautiful. Even better, even better. So I don't know what this, this poor guy's like, yep, mm-hmm. That's my album, you know. Even the best of us stumble and fail. Somehow we have to accept that. We have to accept each other. You know, that, that, sort of, that, that story Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, a man who goes to the front of the altar and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I thank you that I give a tenth of all that I 
take in. I thank you that I'm that I'm righteous, you know. And then this this sinner goes in the back, doesn't look up, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus takes sides, guys. He says that one of them walks away justified. One of them has the hope of community. One of them has the chance of seeing the kingdom of God in this lifetime. And it's not the one who understands his own goodness, his own righteousness. It's the one who takes the low seat. If we want Jesus in our lives at any level, if we want to see him come into our microchurches, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into the places where we're trying to bring light into darkness, guys, you have to carry this with you. And that's humility. But what is great humility? I mean, that's next level. He's not just saying, you know, you know how I lived among you with humility. He's saying, you know how I lived among you with great humility. It's not abdication. It's what I, it's what, the, way, the way I think about it is it's the grace of self-forgetting. It's not just to put others first, but it's actually to forget yourself completely. To be so fascinated, so concerned about the needs of others above your own. Even in this statement, I hear humility. Now, I'm not a humble person by nature. In many ways, I am the least, probably the least humble person here. I'm naturally opinionated and brash. I can be demanding and harsh. But if you have ever seen humility in me, it is because I have chosen it as a value, as a discipline in the way of Jesus. I have never made the underground about me. You know that. I have fought and resisted the cult of personality and the call and the pushing of people to make me the center of things. From the day we started until today. I mean, humility, as Paul would describe in Philippians 2, is to consider others better than yourself, above yourself, their needs, above your own. But what is great humility? Listen, guys, great humility uh, uh, is, is to make your life ultimately about Jesus. Not just to forget yourself for the sake of others, but to forget yourself because you're so fascinated with him. This is my secret, actually. I don't know how to stop my personality but I do know how to be completely captured by the face of Christ Jesus. And by the way, there's some interest in our community and beyond in what it means to sort of walk with the Holy Spirit, to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous uh, work of the Holy Spirit in your life and ministry. This is a great pursuit. This is a great thing to desire in your life. But let me be very, very clear with you as I leave. Let these words ring. If you are a person who thinks of yourself as someone who cares about the things of the Holy Spirit or desires the things of the Holy Spirit, you listen to me very, very carefully. The Holy Spirit was not sent into this world to glorify you. And the second you start to glorify yourself on this stage 
or any stage or sitting in your living room or some church meeting or some meeting room or in front of your team, the very moment you begin to glorify yourself, the Holy Spirit will leave you. Will walk away from what you're saying. Understand this. Please understand this. The second you begin to aggrandize yourself, the second you begin to glorify yourself, the second you begin to promote yourself, the Holy Spirit's not mean. The Holy Spirit's not going to smite you. This is what's going to happen. If the Spirit of God is with you in the delivery of the message of the glorifying of Jesus, as soon as you glorify Jesus, He's with you. He's on. He's supporting you. He's partnering with you. And the second you begin to glorify yourself, the Holy Spirit is simply going to step aside and wait for you to finish. Are you done? As long as you want to make it about you and somehow work out your own insecurities or somehow look for some kind of love or support or something that you think you're missing and you're using ministry and you're using your platform or your place to get people to give something to you, to put something back in you that you think is somehow missing, the second you do that, the Holy Spirit is simply going to remove himself from your work and your words and wait until you're finished. Because the Son did not send the Spirit to glorify you. The Spirit has been sent to glorify the Son and nothing else. That is His work. God resists the proud. A lesson that was hard learned by both James and Peter. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen to that. God resists the proud. Not the thief. God doesn't resist the thief or the sexually immoral or the addict or the fool. He resists the proud person. And if you know the original language, that word there for resist is, 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 is actually to, that God comes in full battlement against you. God raises himself as an army against you. The proud person. To vanquish you. To throw you down. I don't know how you feel about that. But I'm not interested in that life. I don't want God. <laughs> marshalling the fullness of his power. To throw me down. Is anybody else not interested in that experience? Anyone? Pass. Hard pass. <laughs> On God resisting me. Throwing me down. But gives grace to the humble. And in both those texts, both in James and Peter, the, the, the action, the actor is you. It is you. And he said, in both cases, they say, humble yourself, therefore, before his mighty hand. Humble yourself. The second you glorify Jesus. That's, the, that's great humility. Great humility is the lifting up of Jesus and the forgetting of yourself. It's not abdication. It's not saying, I'm a worm. It's saying, look at him. Look at him. Look at him. It'll take your breath away. Look at him. Know him. Follow him. Listen to him. Obey him. Trust him. 
If this is your message, if this is your, your, your demeanor, if this is your posture, then humility is the result of that. It's the condition of that. It's the elevation of Jesus, the glorifying of Jesus. And you can't have one without the other. You cannot have somebody who's aggrandizing themselves and pretending to glorify Jesus. And all over America, people will stand up in pulpits this weekend and they will do that lie. They will play that game. They will twist that duplicity. And we fall for it. We're concerned about the words of my pastor or, 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 or my leader person or something like that. God, no. But the second you glorify Jesus, anytime, anywhere, the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and empowers you in some sort of strange mystical partnership between you as a fallen sinner, ordinary person, and suddenly you have the fullness and the battlement of the Spirit of God on your side. Displaying His splendor. Because you know what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the world? He wants to glorify Jesus. He wants to lift up Jesus. He wants people to see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. If you want to really, and listen, Holy Spirit people and non-Holy Spirit people, whoever you are, uh, if you want to really invite the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, glorify Jesus. Just do that. Make your life and ministry about Him, never you. Keep your microchurch about Jesus. Keep the underground in love with, in submission to, in honor of Jesus. He says, and with great humility and tears. And tears. I think this, is, this second little qualifier is what makes this statement itself not bragging. It is the tears, you see. That change everything. He's not strutting when he says this. He, he, he's, when he says, with great humility, I don't think he's puffing out his chest and saying, and with great humility, I serve the Lord. And that's not what he's doing. He's, I, 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 almost, I almost sense there's a, there's a sort of lowering, uh, a wincing, a remembering of the pain that great humility brings when he says, and with great humility, you know... I served you with great humility and with tears. Because he knows that it's costly. And tears. I lived in the pain of mission. I suffered for you, with you, because of you. And they know that, or at least they should. Guys, I don't have to tell you this because many of you have walked in mission as long as I have. A lot of ministry is tears. A lot of ministry is tears. Because it is the will to love. And love is suffering. It is the will to suffer because of love. It is the will to suffer for love. And this has been my message to you from the very beginning. And I have... I have cried with you and for you and because of you. I stumbled on this just incredibly fascinating piece of research recently. 
It was done, I think, to the University of Oxford, but it was done in Brazil. And um, they wanted to, the abstract describes it this way, they wanted to examine the effects of exertion and synchrony on bonding. This is really fascinating. So what they wanted to do was to see the effect of people dancing, in, like synchronized dancing, the effect it has on people, both in terms of, anybody like to dance? Any dancer type people here? Nah, that was weak. Uh, it's fine. Uh, this is sort of, anybody line dance? Is that a thing? What, what do you, the electric slide or something like that? Or <laughs> country music people like to line dance, boot, scoot, and boogie or something like that? What is the effect? This is, this is what they wanted to study. They wanted to study what is that effect both on social bonding, and this is so fascinating, on pain tolerance. Pain tolerance. And, and what they discovered is that synchronized dance, that is, the way they describe it is exertion and synchrony. So exerting yourself somehow in time with others. And what they found is not just through the release of endorphins, which exercise creates, there's a certain amount of like strength you gain from that. But they found that it was 20 times greater pain tolerance for people that danced together. Isn't that crazy? I don't think, I don't think you think it's as crazy as I do. Think about it a little more. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? People that dance together can take more pain. Do you understand? The people that hear the same music and move in the same time together suddenly can bear more of a burden. If they'll exert themselves together, not, not completely separately, but to the same beat, to the same cadence, and to do that thing with others, not just to dance to your own song to the beat of your own drum, but to actually somehow do that with a group of people in this life is something we already knew was true. Welcome to the party, University of Oxford. We already knew that exertion and synchrony, when put together, allows us to have a greater pain tolerance than the rest of the world. We already knew that the way to survive in mission is not to do it alone, but to do it together. And this too is something I need you to remember. It creates bonding, but it also makes us capable of bearing more pain. I love it. He says, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Paul is trying to create synchrony in exertion. House to house, publicly. And I too hope that I have held my nerve in the face of criticism. That I have called the song. That I have called out the cadence for us to dance to. The pressure I've felt to make it easier, I have not succumbed, both in public and in your homes. 
I have called us to repentance and faith in Jesus and a commitment to our radical values in a world that does not understand us. And we have danced together and we have cried many tears. And now he says, by the Spirit, I am going. I love this, this second part. He says, I do not know what will happen to me there. I love that. I love it partly because it's, it's Abrahamic. It's old. It's as old as the first relationship with the living God. When, 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 when God says to Abraham, go to a place I will show you later. In other words, trust me. Just trust me. Just, just come along. And later when Abraham puts all his hope in this, this, this son, this offspring, Isaac, and God says, take your knife and plunge it into his chest. Make him an offering. But how can I? And of course, it's never God, it was never God's intent to take his own son from him. But will you trust me? And later when Jesus will come along uh, to some fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, and say, come on, follow me. Where? Just trust me. Trust me. I love that. I don't know what will happen to me there. I love that. I have to say the same thing. I have said the same thing to this point. And now I am compelled by the Spirit and I am going. I am going to Ireland. And I don't know what will happen to me there. I don't have some master plan. And I just want to, I, I've, I've taught you for years that, that all human relationships hinge on three statements. Good human relationships hinge on three statements and your competency in delivering those three statements with sincerity. The first is thank you. We have to be able to show gratitude, be actually be able to see and show gratitude to the people in our lives which are there for us. The second is, I'm sorry. We have to be able to see where we have wronged each other and quickly and easily and, and, and with as much ease as possible say, I am sorry. The third, I said, is I love you. There has to be a bond of love between us and we have to be, have the courage to say it to each other, to look into each other's eyes and to say, I love you. But I want to add one this morning. I want to add, I want to give you a fourth maybe, that's also just as crucial to human life and thriving and relationship. And it is this phrase, I don't know. And competency in that phrase may be just as important as the other three. To be able to say with sincerity, I don't know. I'm learning. I'm listening. I'm following. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm waiting on God. I am not God. I don't know. And Paul weaves that in here. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there. But I'm going anyway. Because this missionary life is not about goals we set or ambition we carry. It's not about making a name for ourselves or impressing our peers or proving something to our donors or validating our call to other people. It is about following someone. To be where he wants us so that we can be used by him in the way that he wants to use us once we get there. 
You don't get to know everything. You don't get to figure it out or plan it. And the second you start doing that, the second you can say, this is what I'm going to do, this is exactly how it's going to play out, the one thing you can be sure of is that you've left God behind. Because you no longer need Him. I don't know. Is a sacred phrase for us. You don't have to know what you're stepping into. Just that the one who leads you is good. And then this last bit. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Only to finish the race. The task. His calling that he's been given. And that's it. That's it. I tried to say from the first day until today, do what you're called to do. Be a called person. And listen, guys, the professionals will tell you that it's your career that matters. The hedonists will say it's money, sex, and power. The psychologists will tell you self-esteem. That's the thing. The patriot will tell you it's your country. The cultural Christians will say it's family or balance or boundaries or Sabbath rest. The artist will tell you it's beauty. That's the thing. They'll say it's about accomplishment or fame or appreciation. And I'm telling you, listen to me. It's all worth nothing. Compared to completing the task the Lord has given you to do. To run your race. None of it compares to the thing he has called you to do. It's all nothing compared to your race. Find your race and run it. Find your race and run it. Don't be ashamed. Listen to me. Don't be ashamed of not being good at everything. Please. Don't even try to be good at everything. Don't try to run someone else's race. Sometimes to be very good at something, I mean really, to devote yourself completely to something, is to de facto be poor at something else. My favorite way to explain this to you would be to talk about Fred Rogers, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers. Anybody? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. For those of you that don't know, YouTube. Um, in 1985, Fred Rogers was asked to be on Oprah Winfrey's, uh, at that time, relatively new, but, but, but very popular TV show. And Oprah asked uh, Fred Rogers to come on, and she said, I want you to talk about early childhood development, which, of course, was very, very important to Fred Rogers. But he asked her for something. He said, he said, I will come on. I want to come on, but, but I, need you to, I need you to do something for me. Can you make sure there are no children in the audience? And th she said, why? Why not? We, we think it'd be great to have children in the audience. He said, no, you can't have any children in the audience. If there are children there, I think this is so fascinating. He said, if there are children there, I will not be able to answer your question. Because they are everything to me. 
and I won't be able to have an adult conversation with you if they're there. I'll mess up your show, is basically what he said. Well, they didn't listen, the producers of Oprah Winfrey. They didn't listen. They thought it would be just great to have moms and their kids and families all together. So they did. They brought in everybody. There was a third of the audience was little kids sitting on laps and there. And sure enough, just as he said, the second those kids started looking at him and asking him questions, he got out of his seat. He wouldn't even sit where he was supposed to sit, like where they blocked him. And he got out of his seat and he sat down on the floor. And the, the, some, a little girl asked him a question. And she said, can I have a hug? He said, please come give me a hug. And the whole thing just started unraveling. He told them, you can't have them there. If they're there, I'll forget. Oprah, all the, all the adults, they won't matter to me. The TV cameras, they won't matter to me. If there's one little kid there, that, that's the person that will matter to me. That's what, that's what running a race looks like. His story is really fascinating because he, 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 he was always a deeply uh, committed Christian, uh, but he got his little start in Pittsburgh there at that, that, that little TV studio, the, and, he, and he had his show, and he, he started to realize, I think this might be my calling. And, and then he went off to seminary, he went to Pittsburgh Seminary, and felt like, I need to, I need to see myself as a, as, a, as a minister. And in that time, uh, we're talking about you know the, the mid-60s at the time, he thought, this is the way I have to sort of demonstrate uh, my commitment, my calling as a minister. And so he did. He went and got his MDiv, and when he got out, he went to, he was a Presbyterian. He went to the Presbyterian church and he said, I think I'm called. I think, I think my, my parish, my church, my ministry is supposed to be kids and it's supposed to be television. And they said, no, we, you can't do that. That's not how it works. You have to have a church and you have to have a pulpit. And, he's, and he was interesting because he, he got, he got the highest marks in homiletics. So at, 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 at Pittsburgh seminary, they, he was a, he was a phenomenal, uh, 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 preacher, but when he when he stood up in front of a group of audience, a group of adults, he froze and he was horrible because that was not his race, and they couldn't understand and they couldn't give him, they couldn't make him the pastor over over a million kids on 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 television, but that was his race. Being good at that maybe made him not good at something else, but he was brave. He was brave enough to follow Jesus, to run his own race. Whereas the writer of Hebrews says, to throw off what hinders, to not deviate. And don't just walk, run. Run your race. If we all do that, in love with Jesus, in great humility, if these are the terms of our social contract, of our community, we'll not only live on, we will change the world. We'll change the world. I just want to say one last thing, and then actually I want, I want us to have a minute to pray together. Um, 50 years ago, Exactly 50 years ago this month, which I just think is meaningful. We're talking about 1968. 1968 has to be considered, after the Civil War, possibly the worst year in American history. It was a year full of unrest. It was in that year that we lost to assassination Martin King, John Kennedy, 
and Bobby Kennedy, freedom fighters, gunned down. Can you imagine the, the social grief in one year? There was this overwhelming despair that we were locked in an unwinnable war, an unjust war in Vietnam. There was racial, social unrest. There were riots happening all over the country. The, the country was coming apart at the seams. This is 50 years ago. And there was one moment in that year, in December, December 21st to be exact, 1968, where something happened, something, something different took place. And it was the first attempt, it was the Apollo 8, the first attempt for human beings to break low orbit. The first human beings to enter into full Earth orbit and then to orbit the moon, to go outside the, the gravity well of planet Earth. The first human beings to see Earth rise with their own eyes. And the whole world watched. They were able to link up television cameras to the Apollo 8 crew, three men. And the world hung on each broadcast of what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. And it wasn't clear whether they would survive. You have to understand this had never happened before. I think they were sort of ahead of themselves technologically. And there was some belief, even, even once they had made that lunar orbit, which was really all that they hoped for to be able to accomplish. It wasn't clear whether or not re-entry would, would be survivable. Do you understand? Because no one had ever done it. We're just talking about calculations at this point. Would it be survivable? And in what would be the most watched television broadcast in human history was Christmas Eve, 1968 when the crew of Apollo 8 made their final transmission to Earth and they knew this may be it for us. We may not survive this. And so this is Apollo 8's last few minutes on, on screen in the most watched and the world hung on their words. The world was unified for one moment with these guys. And they and 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 I've read a biography of Jim Lovell and, and some of these other astronauts who were who are they were they were toiling, what do we say in this final broadcast? Because we may die. And they knew full well the world they had left behind. This planet Earth, which now they could see from this heavenly vantage point. They could see the earth in a way no one else could see. What do we say in this moment? What will be our final transmission to earth if we're to die? What are our parting words? And with the whole world watching, this world in chaos and turmoil, with the whole country watching, this is what they said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they read the first 10 verses of Genesis 1. 
And the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And they, they passed the microphone. All three of them read Genesis 1 to a fractured world. one moment 50 years ago this month and 2018 has seen much of the same struggle and in that sea of chaos they brought the world together with this word they rose above it and listen to me if I have one word for you this morning from God it is this in a hard time like the one in which we live, I plead with you to rise. Rise. Above it all. In Jesus' name, rise. For the kingdom's sake, rise. Someone has got to see the world beyond its wreckedness. Someone has to see beyond what it is that we experience in, in this mutual hatred and breakdown. Someone has to call to mind not just the words of Genesis 1, but the words of John 1. When John also wants to bring us back to this primal origin story, and he says John's words, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that has been made was made for Him, and through Him, and by Him. And this Word that was in the beginning became flesh, and made His home among us. And He has given us, John says, the right to become the children of God. Rise Above it, guys, rise so that we can tell that story, that greater story over the chaos that we see around us. Keep our work, our narrative about Jesus and the space he inhabits above us. The hope of heaven. He is the hope of heaven. He is the word who was God in the beginning, who was made flesh. He is the one who has given us the right to become the children of God. This is our story too. I want to invite up Marcus, but I also want to take a minute to pray with us together. And so this last thing I want to do, I think if you can just have a little bit of patience... And bear with us. I want to bless the leaders who, who I am now, who I feel a great degree of trust in trusting. I personally want to bless, and it's sort of a gesture of, I don't know, uh, passing on something spiritual. I want them to come up. And then I think probably it would be fitting, and I think they want to also pray over me and Monica uh, as we go. So is that okay? Can I have just a few more minutes to do those two really important, almost ceremonial gestures? Is that okay?
So I want Lucas, Brianna, Keisha, and Jeremy to come up just as, a, just as representation of all of our leaders. Actually, Ryan Colonia, too. Why don't you come up as a governing elder? So you guys come up here. Of course, they represent uh, all of you in, in many ways, but different aspects of what it is that God has started here and the way that it will be grown, improved, and changed. And so will you just bless them with me? And guys, will you hold out your hands? Just hold out your hands. And so Lord, in Jesus' name, I entrust, I lay into these hands, God, whatever it is that you have entrusted to me. The small part that I have played, God, the things that you have given to me, I give to them. I pass on, I put into their hands, God. And I bless them. These friends, these co-laborers, these brave ones, and all the people that they will serve in your name, God. That they would carry on for us in their very bodies, in their lives, humility, they will carry integrity. That they will forsake their own lives for your name's sake, God. For your fame in the world. That they will love the unloved. That they will serve anyone with a kingdom dream. God, I bless them. I love them. I treasure them. I thank you for giving them to us as a gift. And in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I give the last of the leadership that I have from this community to them. Amen. Monica would be willing to come forward. We do have, um, you know, it's a bit of a Antioch church moment here together as a, as a community who, for quite some time, they were led by Barnabas and Paul. And then in a, in a prayer meeting, in a worship and fasting meeting, the leaders of that church in Antioch were called by the Holy Spirit breaking into that meeting and saying, I'm asking you to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've, I've asked for them to do. And so, guys, calling is not just an individual affair, it's a collective affair. So they are, they are being called, they're being asked to, do, to take a risk and to, and to follow Jesus um, and to figure out the rest later. And we're actually all being asked to set them apart, to give them away. And so we have a role here too. And so I'd like to take a moment to lay hands on them, pray for them. Uh, uh, us as representatives of staff, if there's governing elders here who want to come forward and pray for them. Also, I think Kathy's here as a representative of the board. Um, and then if you've, guys, if you've uh, uh, been impacted somehow by the leadership of this family, and you're grateful uh, for the leadership of this family, I want you to stretch out your hands as, as a way to, to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in this moment, to set them apart, to give them away. And to say, God, we, we're grateful for and trust you with these leaders. 
know, the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7 says, it's really the lesser that's blessed by the greater. So I just want to admit, I feel like the lesser in this blessing situation, but that is to misunderstand our position in the story of what Jesus has been doing in this world, through history, and through this church, through this organization, through this community called the underground. So in the same way that we have been blessed, and underground, have you been blessed by the Sanders family? Have you been blessed by their commitment, by their sacrifice, by their ministry? Then indeed stretch out your hands and let us bless them this morning. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the opportunity that it has been to sit, not just under their leadership, but under their friendship, under their stewardship of what God had committed to them. And God, we freely accept the blessing. And in turn, we want to turn that into calling. We want to bless others. And so God, I pray that you would stoke the fire of the Holy Spirit in each of us that we would not feel like spectators even in this moment. But if Jesus, if Jesus has done anything for you in your life, in your tenure with this community, even in this day, then God, we bless with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Brian and Monica, all of his children, and everyone who said yes to go. Because just like them, we have also said yes. God, if it's the lesser that gets blessed by the greater, then it is Jesus Christ who has blessed us all. And so, God, we feel the weight of that on us. God, we pray that you would give them everything that they need in this journey, that you would open every single door that needs to be opened, that you would send them a priest like Melchizedek that would lay hands and say, thank you that you don't know what you're doing, but I've been sent here to bless you. I acknowledge what God is doing in your yes. And God, for us that are here, that we would feel the same way. There are some of us that need to say yes in a different way in this season that is coming. God, we are eager to be a part of your story. That hope that's been entrusted in us in this moment, we want, that, we want to see that hope go on today and tomorrow and into the future. And when we look back on things, God, when we read the fullness of the story of what God did in this community, let us do that with joy and with gladness, with humility, with soberness. But there's nothing stopping us from experiencing that joy in this moment right now today. And so we thank you in advance for the work that you would do through the Sanders family. We thank you that when they come back to us that we would celebrate them with joy. That we would have a good report for the things that God has done in their absence. And that we would celebrate together for there is nothing in distance that will disconnect us. This is not about proximity. It is instead about the things that connect us and that is our, our unique 
and our individual call to serve the Lord, to put Jesus at its center, and to continue to labor together. That is a hope that will not fail us community. And so God, may your Holy Spirit dwell fully within them. And may you send them, may you walk before them, may you prepare the way for them as this is something that fulfills all righteousness. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you in the precious and holy name of Jesus. And everybody say amen. Amen.